Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews 12. Last week, the title was The Joy That Was Set Before Jesus. And we use this as a text because that's what it says in this verse. And this morning, I want to talk about the joy that is set before us. Let's read again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed or surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's those in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Verse 2 says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That means that true Bible faith comes from him. And what comes from him will do in you what it did in him. It caused him to please God in everything he did. Remember he said in Psalm 40, Lo, it is written in the book, I have come to do thy will. And he faced all the adversaries that you face, for the Bible says he was in all points tempted like we are, and yet he did not sin. I mean, he resisted sin, and he overcame. He said in John 16 and verse 33, he said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So that we have seen it done, and we saw it done by somebody who is the author of our faith. And what he gives you, we call faith. When you have faith that comes from God, because God showed us what it does, it'll do the same thing in you. You will overcome also, and you will be triumphant. You want to make sure that you understand that Jesus is the one who gives you faith. He is the one who encourages it, and he's the one who shows you how it works. He is the author and the finisher or the perfecter, the one who brings to its fulfillment our faith. Now, secondly, we said this last week, Jesus was willing to suffer. He left a place, lofty habitations of heaven where the throne was. He came down from heaven, made himself of no reputation. You know the rest of the story. And he came down and he lived on the same level that we live on, facing the same adversary that we face, going through the same things that we have to go through. And he did this for one reason. When the Bible speaks of the joy that was set before Jesus. It didn't mean he didn't have joy because he promised us his joy in John 14 and 15 and 16. There are verses there that said, These things I've said to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Asking you shall receive that your joy may be full in John 16. And so Jesus didn't come to get joy. He was joy. He had joy. But there was something, a task, a mission that was given to him by his heavenly father. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. And so he came to the earth to fulfill something that was God's will. And that's what we looked at the last time. And in doing it, the Bible says he endured the cross. It had to be a horrible, horrible, painful time in human existence to die the way he died. 
and to be rejected by everybody except his mother who was standing at the cross, who was with him in the crowd, to be rejected by everybody, to be forsaken, to be hated by his own country and by his own people, to be scorned and scoffed at while he's carrying his cross, to be spat upon and probably mocked and called names, and yet never quit. He, Jesus said, no man can take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to give it. You are not dragging me up this hill to crucify me because you're stronger than I am. He, he could have called 10,000 angels. He was willing. I hope that when our life on this earth, assume we all stand before God, I hope that while we're on this earth, we have embedded in our hearts a true gratefulness and thankfulness for Jesus Christ. Not for all the things we got because of our faith, just for who he is and what he did for us and how loyal we should be to him and how naturally it would be for him to expect us to be that way and how much we should love him just because we see what he did and what he went through to do it. We were lost. You know the rest of the story. We were undone. We couldn't save ourselves. And we read in Isaiah 53, as we did the last time, and all of those verses, words that describe what he had to endure to obtain the joy that was set before him. Whatever was out there to be gotten, he was willing to do what he had to do to get it because when he got it, it would be an immense, wonderful, joyful thing that happens. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. Bible speaks of sorrows and griefs. We know there are pains and sicknesses, and he was rejected of men all through that chapter. And yet he never once considered, except maybe for the brief moment, I don't think he was willing to not do it, but remember in the garden? Turn to Matthew just for a moment this morning. We left this out last week. Let me throw it in this week. Matthew 26, and beginning in verse 37. Matthew 26, we have this picture, Matthew's account, Mark also and Luke also has an account, but we have this account of Jesus in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. I said two weeks ago that before there was a cross, there was a garden. And I haven't spoken about that. I'm not going to this morning except to make some brief comments. But in Matthew chapter 26, and verse 36, Then cometh Jesus unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began, notice these words, began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now this is a picture that we've never seen of Jesus at any other time. But you've got to remember that in the days of his flesh, do you all believe that Jesus was a man? That he was both man and God? He was the son of man and the son of God or the son of Adam and the son of God? He was the only begotten. The words only begotten means one of a kind, monogenesis, one of a kind or of a beginning. There's nobody else ever like him. He was different. But he had to be because all men born into this world, they all have a human father. You're born of the sinful flesh. Well, he wasn't. His father was God. But he was made like unto us, therefore he had to have a body. A body was made for him and so forth. That's not what we're talking about today. But he came and lived on the same level that you and I are in. 
facing the same adversary, the same problems. He cried, he wept, he was hungry. He knew what it was like to be rejected and all of that. Bible says there was all those nights on those hillsides where he cried with loud tears. And it says here that when he came to the garden, this was before the cross and before the things about the cross, Pilate's court and all the scourging and the beating and the mocking and the insults that he would endure. He has to endure it or we can't be here. And you get this picture in verse 37. And he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now the dictionary, which is all we've got about Greek words, what Greek words mean or what is implied by these words, the word sorrowful means depressed and overwhelmed. Now, he wouldn't say that he was overwhelmed to where he couldn't function because he obviously could, but that kind of pressure was up on him. We've gone across the valley, the Kidron Valley, over up into the Mount of Olives, and here's the Garden of Gethsemane where he would often pray, and he said, pray with me, just pray with me. I'm going to go yonder and pray. And he goes over here and pray, and you see this sorrowful, I mean, this, this something was really in an agony. I think the word agony was used in either Mark or Luke's gospel. He was in an agony. Over what? He could have called 10,000 angels and gotten out of this, couldn't he? I mean, you look at the level of commitment that's in so-called Christianity today. Why would you die for that? There's not very many people that are loyal and committed to Christ who would put him first and live solely for him. There's not very many at all. But he was willing, whatever he had to go through before the joy was there, what he had to go through was, uh, if we'll stop and think about it, sorrowful, depressed, very heavy, means pressed down like in grief and you lost your greatest friend in the world and you're depressed and you see him praying like this in this kind of a picture. Verse 38, then he said unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The word means intensely sad. Why? Because facing him, as Hebrews writes, Hebrews 2.19, he was about to taste death for every man. And he wasn't afraid to die. You have to realize that here was God, this is Emmanuel, God with us. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to him. Christ was a man, he had a will. He had a soul, he was a human body, just like you. He had the same limitations you have as far as the physical side, but on the other side, it was God in Christ. But when you get saved, similar thing happens to you. Something from heaven comes into you. It doesn't rule you because you have a will and you have a soul. You can make a choice and he could make choices. But there was a complete total surrender of Jesus to his father, if I could say it that way without getting too many questions to, to answer. There was something in total submission, but there was this job you got to do. There's this thing you got to go through. And I can see him there just wrestling with this thing. You're going to hang on a cross. In spite of all the stories that I have heard about they didn't remove all of their clothes, the Romans would. They didn't care about shamefulness and being 
unclothed and uncovered. They laughed and mocked. And, and this was coming. And they're going to beat you, and they're going to kill you. They're going to spit on you. They're going to shame you. Everything they can to degrade you so that nobody would ever want to follow you. They beat that man. I just read the other morning when I was reading at my breakfast table in Isaiah 51, his visage, that is his presentation of himself, what he looked like, was marred. There was no beauty about him that you would want. There was no prettiness about Jesus that you'd want yourself. He was beaten and swollen. His back was cut open with those scourgings. He was going through this. And we see him going to his disciples in verse 42. He says, can't you not pray? Then he goes back and his soul is heavy. And then he comes back in verse 44 and he says it again a third time. And there's something here that is, ugh. Now, next week we'll go into us and striving against sin because remember the question was asking, was it verse four of Hebrews? It said, you have not yet resisted unto blood and striving against sin, striving against, overcoming it, not yielding to these human weaknesses. Well, I just can't help it. Not giving into that. Jesus showed us that you can. And he bore down and he made the hard decision. And once he did, there's nothing but a calm lamb who has led to the slaughter after this. He was before Pilate as he opened not his mouth. There's no more struggle, no more strain, nothing. He was at peace. And he went that way to the cross and he died. It wasn't easy on the cross and he knew that. In fact, at one time, didn't he say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Wasn't that one of the cries of the cross? But wasn't there also one that says it is finished? If it was finished, then it is finished. And that was one of the great joys that was set before the Lord. But I said last week, among the several things that was a joy set before him, probably first was being restored back to the Father's throne, that heavenly place. And a new experience came to the throne. A human experience was added to the throne, wasn't it? You have somebody now who's not just a figure of your imagination. There's a human experience up there. Somebody that you call your God, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as Titus wrote about. He's had a human experience. This is a whole new dimension now. So many new things are now possible, and he knew that it would be if he fulfilled his Father's will. For example, he destroyed, in Hebrews 2, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. Colossians 2, we looked in Colossians 2, verse 15, where he said he spoiled the strong man. At the cross, he did an end to the power of sin. Sin shall no more have dominion over you. Christ has overcome it and put an end to its ruling power. When Adam gave in, to sin in the garden, the whole human race died. Death is a result of sin. And where the first man Adam sinned through disobedience, Paul writes, the second Adam by obedience has redeemed us. We no longer have to be weak. We no longer have to make excuses. We don't have to sin. Oh boy. See, when Jesus said to that woman, go and sin no more, he was only kidding her because that's not possible. It is possible. 
Why would he say something that's not? He told us not to sin. We no longer have to be under the weight of the devil. He no longer has a right to rule over us because Jesus conquered him, spoiled him, and put him in his place. And in doing so, he has set us free. His first sermon of Isaiah 61, he came to set the captives free, to loose the prisoners, to open prison doors. Did he? Who was in prison? Us. We were all in bondage. Remember Ephesians 2? We were by nature the children of disobedience. We couldn't do anything about it. We were sinful people. Our sins have put us under instead of above. And the sinless one came and paid a price for sinful man. So that now sinful man can be forgiven, justified, which is like just as if I'd never sinned. And we can be restored to a place with Jesus Christ in heaven at the right hand with him. I think the Bible says we're seated in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians. Do y'all believe that? At least you believe it because the Bible says it. Well, all of this is possible. It was never possible before, but it is now. And he knew that the joy set before him would be the release of us from weakness and despair and defeat and all this stuff that just controls masses of humanity. They just give in so easy. They make excuses so easy. And also the joy that was set before him, the mystery that was hidden from the ages, the possibility of a New Testament, a new covenant, a new covenant, and would be seen by the coming together of called out believers, people who have the Spirit of God in them. Jesus would be the chief cornerstone of what would be called the church. He said, this is my church. He said, I will establish this church. And he would be the chief cornerstone. And he and the Hebrews too, it would be built on this earth as a habitation of God in the spirit. It would be a testimony to the whole world that this is what Jesus Christ is doing. This is his body. He is represented on this earth, not by the Pope, but by his church. And we are his people. We are his chosen ones. If you're elect, and we are the ones who represent him on this earth. Jesus said in John 17 that they may all be one even as I and you are one, that they may also be one in us, that the world may know that you did send me. So here is this joy that was set before him that there will be a coming forth of a group of people joined together, not under a law, but under grace. And the figurehead of all this would be Jesus Christ. He would be the head. And all the people in there would be loyal to him, and they would all be affected by him and each part of this body, each joint would have something to share with the next joint until it all came into the unity of the faith and so forth. So this is coming, but it's possible for this to happen. And so many wonderful things are said about it. But what about the joy that is set before us? What about now that all of the things that he did, he has done? What about the joy that is set before us? Is there something this morning while you're sitting here that should cause you to be joyful? In my opinion, my estimation, my opinion, 
what is called Christianity today is only happy if things that happen are pleasing to them. But as far as a joyful person, no matter what, I don't see much of it. I don't know or see a lot of people who are joyful. People who have a reason to rejoice just because they're saved. Turn to Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. And look at verse 20. Let's see if this would work as a reason for us to rejoice. Would that be a good reason? Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that is, because they have power to cast out demons. Didn't he? Didn't he send them out and tell them to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and freely and freely and freely and so forth? Well, they came back going, wow, I guess something like that. And Jesus saw them. He said, behold, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and nothing, I love this, you ought to underline this, and nothing shall by any means harm you or hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because. Because what? Because your names are written in heaven. Isn't that good? If it's only a verse of scripture that you say amen to, but it's not real. If it's not something inside of you that the Bible says is living and active, a living word, then it doesn't emit response. It doesn't bring a response. For example, we could have one of those dreary days. It's nothing seems to be the way you'd like for it to be, but it's church day. And you go to church. You don't exactly feel good. You haven't had the best week of your life. And your car keeps screaming out for help. So you go to church. And you sit there and fold your arms. Now, I'm not saying you all would ever do this. I don't think you would. But there's a lot of Christian people who go to see what they're going to do this morning. What's he going to talk about? I wonder if I'll enjoy it this morning. It's like, here I am, do me. And when it comes to worship and praise, well, I, you know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite this morning. I'm not going to be a hypocrite and I'm not going to say praise the Lord because I don't really feel like doing it. And, and I'm afraid if I act like I mean it, I'm just going to be a hypocrite. So somebody says, well, how about your name's written in heaven? Yeah, yeah, I know that. Everybody knows that. And then somebody says, well, offer a sacrifice of praise. That's not hypocritical, is it? Let me see. Let me take another pause. Man, I got here my second tributary this morning. I'm in the Old Testament law, and I get up one day, and I've got to take a sacrifice into the courtyard. I haven't had a good week. I really don't feel good. My wife's been nagging me real bad, and my kids have been they always wanting something. I didn't make any sales this week, and I lost four or five of my sheep. My donkey ran off, and camel bit me. And so I, it hasn't been a real good week, but it's a morning that I've got this one lamb I've selected for the offering this morning. 
I'm supposed to bring this lamb in the courtyard, but you know, the way I feel, if I bring this lamb, I'm going to be a hypocrite. You know what? God didn't say, come before me because you feel like it. Come before me because you're supposed to. Well, am I supposed to praise the Lord with a bad head? Of course. Of course you are. Who said you were excused from prayer and praise or reading or anything if you don't feel like it? The book of Psalms is so full of joy, the word joy and rejoicing and rejoice. You don't need a reason other than the fact that you're a Christian. If God is for you, you have a reason to rejoice. I don't care if you're broken, feel bad. You have a reason to rejoice. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And in the presence of the Lord, there is joy forevermore. Therefore, you come. Don't we sing something? Come before presence with the shout. Shout. That'd be hypocritical if you didn't feel like it. Shout of glory, come before his presence with a shout of praise. Shout. Dancing, hands up. Joyful noise. Well, he didn't say if you feel like it. He just said come before him like that. Okay, back to where I was. Our great and number one reason for joy is that God has saved us. Jesus paid it all, a whole lot to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but I worked my way through it all. <laughs> no, sir, he is the one supreme being that deserves my very best on my worst day, who deserves my joyful countenance. He has chosen you and me to represent him on this earth as ambassadors. We are to live in the reality of what he has done for us in such a way that others should know that we have been with him. And we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is within us. And we go around scowling and whining and complaining and bickering and fussing and negative all the time. There is no evidence of any joy in your life when you do that. I don't care who you are. We have no right to whine and complain because he's already said, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Not go around finding somebody to complain to or whine to or talk to. You've got to overcome all of that, crucify the feelings and desire to do all of that, and live like he told you to live. We can't draw back into the dark days of our life. We've got to walk in the light. You know, you know, our names are written down in heaven. I know you've heard this, but find Isaiah 49. You might want to underline this. This is a wonderful verse of scripture about something that God said he has done concerning you. Isaiah 49 and verse 15. This is so good. Can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. What's the next verse say? Behold, I have graven thee. Would graven mean written? Tattooed. Graven. 
marked. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Talking about Jerusalem there, but I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. Can you imagine the almighty God whose palm is big enough to put all of his redeemed on? And in all of those names that he will have written there to have yours there in his constant memory that Jesus came for you, that Jesus died for you so that you could be put here, so that you could be engraved on his hands, so that you could read and understand the word and have faith in those promises that are in the word. He did that for you. Nobody ever loved you like that. Nobody would ever do that for you, but God would and he did. And when he secured you, from the foundation of the world, he wrote your name on his hand and you are ever in his remembrance. And concerning that hand, you remember in John chapter 10, verse 28, he said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. This is one engraving that cannot be unengraved, ungraved. This is one thing that he has done concerning the securing of you to himself that no man can take away from you. Someone must say, well, then you must be a Baptist. <laughs> I'm not a very good Baptist if I am. <laughs> but I am a Christian. And I do believe in the security of a believer. Not so-called believer, but in true Christian believers, there is one God who has secured you to himself and has given us the assurance, if you will believe it, that no man can take you out of his hand. Now, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but there are those who will, and they are secure. Those in Ephesians 1, that from the foundation of the world, he wrote your name in his book, and the time came when you were born on this earth. It was God who caused you to be saved. You didn't choose him. He chose you. He set before you all the people and all the things and the places you've been, all the things that bring conviction. And he set you in places and sent you to places, caused you to hear things that brought you to repentance and where you cried out for God to forgive you of your sins because he has selected you. The people you were with who heard the same thing, they're still wild and crazy today. Why aren't you? You have to say, you know, I don't know except that something in me it just wants to be attached to God. Well, why? It's not in other people. It's not even in most people in the church. Why you? I can't explain this. There is a way that God speaks to those who are his, that words can't define it, but the heart knows it. You can't walk away from it. You don't give up. You don't throw it away. You may try to, he'll get you back because he secured you a long time ago and you're his. The Bible said the joy that was set before him made all of this possible. And then one day he opens our eyes to see what he did and the struggle and the pain and the agony and the price he paid to get this for me. Man, I should be always ready to worship God. Praise be to God. For what? What did you get this week? I got my name in the Lamb's book of life. I am going to heaven. If I died standing here right now, if it ended for me right now, 
Don't cry. I'm in heaven. How do you know? You know, I believe that. It's all faith. But the reality of that faith is so strong that it is a securing faith. It holds me to God. And I praise the Lord that I am saved. What should we then be afraid of? He's delivered us from all of our fears, hadn't he? Has he not promised us the supply of most of our needs? Thank you. All of our needs. Did he not say he would bless us when we go out and when we come in? Did he not say he would give us the desires of our hearts? Of course he did. And yet the church sits with folded arms in comfortable pews week after week, year after year. And the reality of this doesn't seem to be there. But, you know, watch a ball game come up on Saturday between your team and their team. Talk about joy. Woo, noise, making a joyful. Woo, somebody scored a touchdown, hit a home run or dunked a ball, and it, <laughs> and it gets so bad in some place, they even pick coaches up and carry them around the gymnasium. We'd never do that in church. <laughs> Would we? I had a church do that to me once <laughs> because I said it about the way I said it to you. And then I saw them get together after church was over. Come on. And I thought, oh, brother. <laughs> they did. I said, come on. I said, no, you're not going to say that no more. <laughs> Round and wide went. But people can rejoice over so many things except God. When we come to God, it's like, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. <laughs> and you're supposed to be very quiet, very reserved. And yet, God says, I want you to express to me how you really feel. I want you to respond to me on how you really feel about what I did. Did he do anything for you? To hear some people talk, they say, when's God going to do something? They don't realize he already has. They keep waiting for God to get them out of some box or some hole. And until they do, all they can do is cry and whine and complain and just yeah, 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 all day long. And you think there's nothing grateful about that kind of speech. Where's your joy? Where is the joy of the Lord in your life? He chose you in the same Psalm 40 that Jesus said at the end of that Psalm. Lo, it is written in the book. The very beginning of it says he rescued you out of the miry clay and he set your feet up on a rock. And he put a new song in your mouth and he established your going. And many will see it in fear. Your life is a display of redemption. You've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. We sing it all the time. Why would we sing joyfully? Because it's real. It's not just a Sunday sermon about stuff we've already heard that we've never responded to. It's real. That's why when it's real, you can hear it a thousand days in a row and say, praise the Lord, amen. Instead of going, I'm already heard that. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with Christendom? No wonder the world outside the church looks at us 
and they say, if they got what I need, I've already got that. At the ball games, they holler. At the traffic light, they beat their dash. They don't treat their wife right. They don't pay their bills. They're not good parents. And when they go to church, they demand, they want, they get mad easier than a little league ball game. Is that what it's still called little league where the kids' parents fight? <laughs> no matter what, God has secured us out of the doom and the certainty of death, a life that is coming in which for the world, what's going to happen? What happens after you die? For us, as Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And it'll be noisy. It'll be real noisy when you get there. The people that I've heard stories of who have had an out-of-the-body experience, angels took them to heaven. He said two things. They said that they noticed right away. One was the color, the brilliance, the outring, the... How about the word effulgence? Whoa. <laughs> or the outshining, it means the outraying of heaven's glory. It was just brilliance undefined. And the other thing was the noise. You know, the Bible says the noise of many waters. There's such a blending together of all the praise in heaven. It was like one sound that was in harmony. And they said it was just lots and lots of worship. The redeemed of the Lord shall return in Isaiah 51 and come with, help me now, singing unto Zion and uh, uh, everlasting church membership will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And what shall flee away? Sorrow. See, you know the song. And sorrow and mourning shall flee away. When? Well, as long as you're in this world and living in this poor old body, you just have to do the best you can. It's never going to get much better. Hogwash. <laughs> That's not true. I had learned in the world, being sick all of my life and feeling insecure and backwards all of my life. I learned to live that way. I, I could have just made the rest of my life and lived that way and been just like people in the world. But Jesus rescued me on June the 30th, 1968, at five minutes to 12. Something happened eternally in my life. Eternal, everlasting life was given to me. I could not earn it. I did not deserve it. It was given. The very spirit that created the world and all that is within it took his personal residence up in my life. And he's not going away. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his. And God in you is the hope of glory the hope of glory, the assurance that I have today that when the day comes to go or when Jesus comes, whichever comes first, praise the Lord. You lose your fear of man. Nobody can buy you anymore. You're not up for bribes. They can't threaten you anymore. They can threaten you, but they can't control you. God is in control. Turn to Jude 24 for a second thing. 
about the joy that is set before us. And it's this, he is going to prepare us for what is coming. Going to heaven, for example, going to heaven will be the greatest thing since your new birth you will ever experience. I can't talk much about it because I've never done it yet. But the Bible speaks of, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise. Or while Paul said to be dead is to be with Christ. There's something about all of that which was more than wonderful. It would control your life. In the meantime, here's what it says in Jude 24 concerning Jesus, our Savior, who hath began a good work in us, and he will also complete it. He that began a good work will finish it. Well, listen to this. See if this is a good finished product. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able. I love that. Now unto him that is able. Able to what? To keep you from falling. Can he do that? Do people fall? Is he able to keep you from falling? So while many do fall, and the Bible speaks of a great falling away in the last days, in the last days many shall depart, that day shall not come in 1 Thessalonians 2, unless there be a falling away first, he is able to keep you from what everybody's going to be doing in the last days, departing from the faith and falling away. He said he is able to keep you from falling. Now, he does it the way he does it. It doesn't say here how he does it. It just says that he keeps you from falling away. And not only that, but to present you faultless, faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who has the joy here, God or you? What happens when you got saved? Did did anything happen in heaven when you got saved? Yeah, angels up in heaven said, we get another one down there? Okay, let me go right on the board. You know what the Bible says? The angels do whatever somebody gets saved. They rejoice. Woo! Glory! We got him. Now it says here, he, Jesus, who now becomes Lord, takes up residence in these bodies with these ignorant minds that we grew up with and is cleansing them and renewing them. He begins to do a work in here, doesn't he? Doesn't the Bible still call him the purifier and the refiner of silver of the sons of Levi? Is he not going to purge his church and refine his church? Though we are saved and we're his, we're not what he wants us to be yet. We are in the beginning stages. So there's a work to be done. It says, now he is able, upon coming into your life, he is able not only to hold you fast and keep you from falling, but he is also able to complete the work that, I still don't know how he's going to do this, faultless? The word faultless means without blemish. Uh, Put your finger there in faultless and turn to Colossians. Colossians 1, and look at verse 22. Colossians 1 and verse 22, and somebody tell me if the word's unblameable or unreprovable, one of those words is in that verse. Both the words are there. Look at what it says, because we're talking about what he's going to do and what he said that he would do in Colossians 1 and verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you how? Holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. 
holy and unblameable. And unre well, the word unblameable is our word faultless in the book of Jude. If you're in the same page I am, I, I look at Christendom, how it operates. I don't have to look very far. I can look in the mirror and see that there's not enough progress going on here in light of the way it's going to be. Because I still can discern some weaknesses or some faults. How many times do you end the day thinking, man, why did I say that? Why did I say, why did I tell that story? Why did I repeat that? Oh, man. You say, will you ever learn a thing? I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do this. I can't. But somebody can. And says he is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before God. Just like in Colossians 1, be holy. Who? Holy. Thinking, actions, and speech. Unblameable. Not even God will find something in you to blame. Unreprovable. No more reason for chastisement, no more reason for instruction. He is going to do a work in you that when he is done with it, he'll be able to bring you into his eternal habitations faultless. Now, <laughs> Lord, I grew up bad. I was a bad man growing up. I wasn't mean. I wasn't mean, nothing like that. I wasn't big and bad enough to be mean. I was just an ugly, sinful man. I know I've come a long way from where I once was, but how are you going to keep doing all of this? Look two books over from Colossians and Ephesians 1. How are you going to do this, Lord? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? That we should be holy and without blame. And here it is for the third time, before him. Holy before him and without blame. Look in chapter 5, there's a church in verse 27 that he might present it, the church, to himself. Didn't it say in verse 25, back to where I was at the beginning of the sermon, that Christ gave himself for the church? Doesn't it say that? So that was part of what was set before him, was it not? And we're it. We're it. Not you, not me, us. That he might present it, the church, to himself, a glorious church having not spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, he is able to do that. I don't know how he's going to do it. I know he's going to. If I ask individually this morning, are you holy this morning? Are you a holy person? You want to say yes, and you might wrestle with, am I really, are you unblameable before God? Is there anything in your life that needs to be fixed, changed, cleansed, purged? Yes. Can you purge it? I haven't been able to. You know who can? Jesus. Go all the way back the other way. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at verse 10. I want you to see all of this because it is what God only can do. This cleansing and purging and making holy and unblameable is something only God can do. He has various ways he does it. But in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, 
But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, will himself do four things. Will himself perfect you. Let me just give you a recall here because we talk about this a lot and it should be fresh. In Colossians 1.28, Paul says, I warn every man that I meet and I teach and exhort so that I may present every man perfect in Christ. It's our mission. It's our mission. It's what's before us. How many times did Paul say at least twice? He said, my cause of joy and rejoicing is you. And you're, the fact that you're doing well and you're trying so hard and you're trying to love each other and overcome. This is my joy. This gospel is working. It's not stagnant. It's working. And I praise God for that. He said, it'd be the joy of ministries. That it really does work. That God really is using you. That it really is effective. And people's lives really are being prepared for glory. And they're not just attending the church to see what kind of story you'll tell this week or if you'll repeat the one you told last week. But it's like, yes, I love to tell the story. Y'all ever heard that song of unseen things above? You ever heard it? Of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Y'all ever go to church when you were growing up? All right, anyway. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect, and establish, which means to set fast, to fix firmly, strengthen, you know what that means, and settle you. Settle means grounded, unlikely to be moved off course. This is what God does in the people he's doing this work in. I wish I could look at what is called the church today and say, this work is happening in all the people, but it's not. Everybody wants to think that when Jesus comes, all these people, the indifferent ones, the ones that aren't trying and are complaining and bickering all the time, they're just going to go up to meet the Lord in the air, and he's got some kind of machine up there. He runs us through, and then all of a sudden we come out glorious. And yet the earth is proving grounds. We're here now. Malachi 3, the refiner of silver. Isaiah said, I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Jesus is the one who says here, after you have suffered a while, does that mean then as Christians that suffering is a natural part of God's work in us? Whew. Would it ever be God's will to suffer? Well, he said after you've suffered a, a while, he didn't say that it was not his will that you suffer, but he said it would. Verse 19th, verse of chapter 4, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God that's what it says. Why would what I've just said about the cleansing and all, why would that be a part of the joy that is set before us? Because he will provide for me what I cannot provide for myself, and he is going to do a work in me that's going to bring me into his eternal habitation. I can't get there without him. And he's going to do it. He promised. Therefore, I don't draw back and say, well, here I am. Just float me into heaven. No. I've got to make my calling and election sure. I've got to put my hands on the plow. I cannot look back. I must overcome. I must be willing to lay down and get on the cross. I've got to do that, but he makes it happen. He says he is able to keep you from falling and to present you. Everything that needs to be done in our lives 
to bring us to that wonderful, glorious place where he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He will see to it that it's done. Because if it's not being done, he must judge what's left. If you're not going to try very hard, or even though you've been in good places your whole life, he has to judge your sin. There'd be a lot of them. Did he say this? But Lord, we did miracles in your name. Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we'd cast out devils in your name. You know what he said? I never knew you. We had no relationship. Your life stayed basically as it was. What I want is somebody who, like John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And wonderfully in this hour, it's getting more defined. The ones that are going to walk this way are ones that are faithful. The message of faith is not do I have to, it's a praise God for it response. Faith, being able to take God at his word and trust him. The sufferings, if I walk by faith, am I going to have to pay a price for this? Will my stands cause me to suffer? Will somebody oppose it? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4 this time. Look at verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials that are, does your Bible say that are to try you? The fiery trials that are to try you. Not might, but they're going to. You are going to be tested. You're going to be proven. You are. Peter, who had been there, who knows what it's like to fail and just about sink in the water and be guilty when the cock crows and denying the Lord, and he knows. He said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though something strange has happened to you. But what? But rejoice. Why is that? Because in following with Jesus, you're experiencing what he experienced. It's not you they hate, Jesus said. It's me they hate. You live my life. You let me be in control in your life. They're going to hammer you just like they hammered me. Praise the Lord. It's a sign that you're doing something right. Now, you can be a fanatic and invite trouble that is unnecessary. But he said, the fiery trials that are to try you, he said, rejoice. What's the 14th verse say? Happy. Happy is the man. Didn't he say that in verse 14? If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, and on your part, he is glorified. It's not you they're persecuting. It's him. What did Jesus Christ say to Saul of Tarsus when he knocked him off that horse on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul was killing Christians, dragging them out of the houses and killing them. The apostle Paul. Jesus said, it's not these people you're killing. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ in them that you're trying to kill. Why are you persecuting me? That's why they don't like us. Unless we shut our mouths and we're afraid of the consequences of living this life and then nothing happens. But if nothing happens, then the fiery trials never do the work they're supposed to do. There's a work that's supposed to be done here. Go back to James. Chapter 1. 
See if you've ever heard this before. Verse 2, my brethren. This is to the church. Count it all pain and suffering when you fall into divers. No, he said count it all joy. Joy comes from God. Happiness comes from the world, but joy comes from God. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different kinds, various kinds of temptations. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. There is no way anybody can ever have a completed work done in their life without trials and testings. They do a work of perfecting in you. Well, let me read it again. Let patience have her perfect work, verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Temptations means simply a proving, a putting to the test to ascertain the quality, like an automobile company, any kind of body today that advertised the product had to test it first. It had to prove itself. I mean, the car had to go through this. The tire had to be driven those many miles over that kind of terrain. Uh, the food had to be tested in the laboratory or the drugs or whatever they are. Whatever they do today that people sell, they have to be first tested. They're not released to anybody until they can prove that they're a good product. Well, why should we think it any different in a spiritual sense that God who selected and brought us to him we're full of all of this world. We're seething with the world. Our minds are corrupt. They have to be renewed. That God, in the process of cleansing us from the old, and so the new can come in, we are led in various ways by the Lord to where we can be tested. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Why would he do less with you? And all the divinely arranged moments in our life that are uncomfortable are opportunities to overcome. To take what you've been taught, if you've listened, and to take your faith and apply that to the word and to the situation and to the problems, whatever they are. We must prove ourselves. And when adversity comes our way in uncomfortable moments and uncomfortable situations, when trying times come, whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's children, domestic, politics, the church, or just maybe some haunting spirit in your past that you've never been delivered of, and it's a gloomy thing that just holds on to you, and, and you have these dark days, and you're crazy acting. Stuff like that follows people. There's people who have these up days, and there's people who have these down days. They don't know how to get free from it. Then God shows you what it's a spirit. It's a devil. And here's what you do. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you've got to resist him by faith. You've got to believe what God said. Take him at his word. Stand on it. Hold on to it. And don't give in. Remember Jesus in the garden? Striving against sin. We're not very strong. We cave in too easy. We give up if it's a little uncomfortable. Oh, the testimony you're going to hear from some of these old saints. The beheaded lions tore them apart, saw their children killed in front of them while they were worshiping and praising God. 
They'll tell you that and you'll go, whoa. They say, tell us how it was with you all in Shelbyville. So, well, we had a lot of rain one day and the road was wet and I ran off the road. It was terrible down there. Gas went up to $3, $4 a gallon and all. And those folks would say, you had it tough. We drive up to the gas pump and just <laughs> instead of saying, hallelujah, I'm glad I got it to give. Nobody seems to understand you. You've heard your name whispered. And some Christians talking about you and your problems. And you confine yourself now that you've been taught. You confine yourself to God and you say, now, Lord, I know this is just the devil trying to get me off course because all my life I'm willing to fight that person. I know that's not the will of God to do that. And your teaching is informing my mind of a new way of living. And I'm going to take that by faith. And I'm going to act like your word is true. And I'm not going to say a word back. The wife who used to be difficult suddenly realizes that a meek and quiet spirit has great value in the sight of God. And she goes, oops. And the man who's never thought of anything but himself suddenly realizes as a Christian that his family is of great value to him. And so he begins taking the scriptures he's learned and, and applying these things. Not giving in to the devil anymore. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Whatever is not of faith is sin. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. You begin to realize that all these uncomfortable things that are coming into your life are opportunities. They're opportunities. The first time, this is tough, you daddies. First time a father gives the key to the car to his rambunks, I mean to his growing up son. The son wants to go to town, and the father gives the keys to the son. Now, they're both going to be tested. Because he goes out the driveway, the Christian father goes, in the name of Jesus. And the son driving down the road knows that he can go as fast as he wants to. He can kill himself or kill somebody else. He's in total control. Once you drive out of that driveway and the keys in the car and you're driving, you are completely responsible for everything you do. Now, you can either prove yourself deserving of support. What's the other word for support? Trust. And you can obey all the commands you've been given and prove yourself trustworthy of respect and consideration from your parents. Or you can go out and drive fast and drag race and haul a bunch of the wrong kind of people around and scratch off at McDonald's. And hopefully, hopefully your daddy will take your keys away from you and put them in a safe, lock them up, throw the key away, and forbid you to drive again. That is, take your keys away from you. See, you had to prove yourself. You youngsters prove yourself to your parents. You prove yourself to each other. Can you be trusted with each other? Can you keep your mouth shut about each other? Can you? You love your wife? You love your husband if you're married? Do you together love your children? Do you try? We're going to be tested. James said, count it all joy when you encounter divers' trials. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe you say you believe in divine healing. And one day there's that, what is that? Where'd that come from? <coughs> oh, no. And you realize that in your body, there's a problem. Your body says you're sick. God says you were healed at the cross. 
What do you believe? Do you believe what your body says? Do you believe what God says? They both can't be right. You can't be sick and healed. You either are or you are. You're either what God says or what the devil says. And you say, well, I am what God says I am. Well, if you are what God says you are, then treat it as a trial. It's a test. Get out of bed. Quit laying there saying, oh, get out of bed. Put your tennis shoes on. Take a walk. Run. Defy the devil. Have you ever done that? Oh, I ain't going to eat that. You know what happens if you eat that? Give me one. Oh, don't eat that. I'm going to because I'm not supposed to. I'm telling you about us. I'm not going to be ruled by anything. Not by food. Not by disease. Not by the swine H165 flu, whatever that <laughs> address of the thing was. I, that's not going to be what controls me. I rest my case with my defending attorney in heaven that it shall be unto me even as he has said. This is made possible by what Jesus Christ done and I can do all things through Christ. Amen. But he's going to prove you in closing. Deuteronomy 13, proving you. Even God says he will do this. In chapter 13 and verse 3, Thou shalt not hearken, this is that man that gave you a sign or a wonder, verse 2, and it came to pass, but his message was in error. Verse 3, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams or that person that's always wanting attention by all these revelations they have. I've been around this much in my life. Oh, the Lord showed me. You should listen. If y'all don't follow this, something wrong with y'all. Wait a minute. I'm going to look at your life, too. Are you proving yourself a reliable Christian? Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God does what? Proveth you. Would God allow us to encounter error? Would he allow falsehood to creep up and look at you and knock on your door? He absolutely would. He would. And he said, God is proving you to know whether you love him or whether you love this revelation stuff more than him. Look in chapter 8, verse 2. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Would he do that? Look at verse 16. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee. Notice now, you want to underline this at the end of that verse, that he might prove thee, and then what? To do thee good at thy latter end. Let me tell you what that said. In James chapter 1, he says, when you're tested, you must believe what God has told you to do. And you must be willing to do it. And you must continue to do it no matter what. You must endure. You must have endurance or patience. The word hupomani means to hold up under, to not let go. And what you're holding up is your faith. Endurance does this because it keeps you from being thrown off course, from falling away and giving in and trying it. And if it doesn't work, try something. No, it said it holds you up. Your endurance, patience does. It does a work in you because you don't let go of God. And in this way, God perfects you. Now, God allows things to come into your life. He allows things to humble you. He locates you. He wants to bring you down. 
And he wants to do the kind of a work in you that makes you say, yes, Lord. Remember Job said at the end of his life, see, I believe God said to Job, either you come down or I'll bring you down. At the end of his life, he said, well, I've heard of you. I had ideas about you and all that, but now you've revealed yourself to me in the last three chapters. And I abhor myself. You are altogether right, and I am pitifully wrong. He humbled himself, and he restored. The latter end of Job was better than his beginning ever was. Is it possible this morning, if you will overcome these trials and tests that come your way and not give in and not quit, and that includes murmuring and complaining. That's part of the temptation, to murmur and complain. Do you believe that if we keep overcoming and we begin to rejoice and count it all joy knowing this, that our latter end will be better than our beginning? God said this will qualify you in verse 16, to do better in the end than it was when you started. And verse 18 says, it's all God. Look at that. Thou shalt remember it is he that giveth thee. And here it's power to get wealth, but he gives you whatever. God is good to us, folks. Our trials are an opportunity to prove ourselves. I know after 41 years of being saved, I know that God allows adversity. Times in my life I thought God was trying to destroy me. I look back now and I realize it was something that he allowed and was an opportunity for me to either quit or overcome. And maybe it's because of the influence of those around me or but it was God, but we overcame. And I can stand here this morning and tell you that after 41 years, of what this is about, as I have experienced it, that we really can be the kind of people that God wants us to be. It can be even as it has been told us. And we should triumph daily in Christ. And because this is becoming and is a reality, we should rejoice. Praise God. Praise God and hallelujah forever. I don't care if I feel alone or if I feel sick. I don't care what's going on. I will not call you on the phone and seek sympathy. I will not call you on the phone and seek sympathy. I will seek faith. I don't want to talk about my problems and glorify the devil with the symptoms. Are we there? You don't need to give testimonies. You don't need to stand up and tell us about the gory details about what you went through last night. Just tell us you had a trial last night and God heals you. Don't make us think, oh, that's what happened to me last night. Maybe I've got that. Just tell us how good it was. Let's glorify the Lord. He's worthy of praise, not the devil. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Father, in Jesus' name, make us to know and to remember thy word and to understand it and to desire it, and to seek it. To look forward to the opportunity to have my mind invaded by that work of your Spirit that brings us to light. Help us to know, Lord, that it's the light that we walk in that you're using to set us free. 
You have said you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You've done that. And now, Lord, I ask you to cause your grace to be upon this congregation before me this morning, here and electronically, and that you would bless your people with all of this. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.